Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Okay, so I want to start and end this message with one of the oldest prayers in the church. It actually dates all the way back to Jesus. In fact, it's called the Jesus Prayer. It goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, the sting, of course, is in those last two words, a sinner. I mean, that's my story. Not just I've failed to actualize my growth potential or I've committed errors in judgment. Not just I'm a wrongdoer, a damage causer, a moral fraud. It's a very humbling statement. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's very counter to our therapeutic culture. So we're in a series called I Didn't Say That. And it's all about these ideas, thoughts, or sayings that get attributed to God, but aren't in the Bible, and that God didn't actually say. And the reason we're doing this is because oftentimes it's our wrong thinking about God that creates stumbling blocks in our ability to trust Him and love Him. And the one for this morning is this, hate the sin, love the sinner. You hear this one a lot, don't you? I mean, some people get really attached to it. I've seen it tattooed on people's arms, but it's not actually in the Bible. Seems biblical. Sin is a bad thing that we're not supposed to like, and we're all sinners, and yet we're supposed to love everybody. So it just makes sense, right? But it's not actually in the Bible. And because of that, I think sometimes it's used in a way that can be misleading. So I want to walk through this in two parts. And let's start with the first part, hate the sin. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about sin. According to the writers of Scripture, how widespread is sin? Very widespread. In Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. According to the Bible, how damaging is sin? Very damaging. Later on in that same book, Romans 6.23, Paul says, For the wages, the payment, the results, the outcome of sin is death. According to the Bible, how seriously should we struggle against sin? Very seriously. In fact, James, he puts it like this. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Really? It's that serious? Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, the writers of Scripture understood that sin is cunning, it's easy to slip into, and it's terribly destructive to the well-being of individuals and our world in general. So they actually have many words in the Bible to describe sin, kind of like the folks up north supposedly have many, many words for snow. I don't know if that's true or not because we rarely see this stuff around here. But the Bible has a lot of descriptive words for sin. So I just want to walk through some of them this morning to help us all understand this word sin better. One particular Greek word, planeo, describes sin as wandering off the path. Like when you take a wrong turn, you end up going where you never wanted to be. Sin is that way. You end up someplace in your life and you think, how did I ever get here? Another very common word in the New Testament for sin is the Greek term hamartia. It means missing the mark. 
It's actually a word that described an archer with bad aim, where the arrow goes where the archer didn't want the arrow to go. Okay, you don't want to be standing near the target if the archer has bad aim. Why? Misfired arrows do damage. No, sin is that way. I say and I do things that hurt other people. Another word that they used back in the Hebrew Old Testament was the term ra'ah. It meant broken or blemished, like a broken chair or a broken computer that's just not useful anymore. Sin does that to people. It damages people. Sin also causes blemishes, like a blemished lamb that was no longer fit to be offered to God or a blemish on your face. Right, one of the laws of adolescence is the more excited you are about a date, the bigger the zit you'll get on that day. I know that one from personal experience. Now, around 200 times, they use this Hebrew word, avon, for sin. It means crooked, bent, twisted, not on the level. And we had a former president who resigned in disgrace and famously said, I'm not a crook. Well, the Bible says there's crookedness in all of us. There's crookedness in you, there's crookedness in me. Another word for sin, it's the Hebrew term for rebellion, pesha. It involves this defiance against God and the moral order of how things should be. It's kind of like the story of the little four-year-old girl whose mother told her, you can ride your bike as far down the sidewalk as this driveway, but no further. If you ride further, I will spank you. True story here. The strong-willed four-year-old stuck out her bottom and said, well, you better spank me now because I got places to go, mama. You know, that's the human heart, right? Dozens of times in the Bible, sin is referred to as owing a debt. It's the Greek term ophelama. Because sinning against God or another person always comes at a price. See, forgiving somebody always costs something. Sometimes sin is pictured as swerving or going astray. The Hebrew shagah, like somebody who's too drunk to walk straight or in our day maybe too drunk to drive safely, and they're going to hurt somebody. Sometimes sin is called lawlessness, the Greek word anomos, because to engage in it, I have to rationalize to myself, at least for that moment, that laws, ethics, right and wrong don't apply to me. Not me, not right now. Now, related to that is the notion of sin as trespass, the Greek word adikos, because we're violating boundaries. I'm going where I ought not to go, and at the same time, my mind is justifying why it's okay for me to go where I ought not go. Because I can always find some reason, right? Even for somebody as a pastor in my profession, I heard the story about a pastor who parked his car in a no-parking zone in a large city. He was short on time, couldn't find a space with a meter there, and so he wrote a note, left it under the windshield wiper that read, I have circled the block 10 times. If I don't park here, I'll miss my appointment. Forgive us our trespasses. When he returned, he found a ticket from a police officer along with this note, I have circled this block for 10 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I will lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. Now, one of the most important words for sin in the Bible is the word impurity, the Greek word akatharsia. James says, purify your hearts. Paul writes to Timothy, do not share in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. Maybe most famously, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I know that word purity can sound old-fashioned, even oppressive in our day. And it has been used by churches in weird ways, culturally strange ways, even ways that are oppressive, particularly for women. 
And so I want to spend a moment on this word purity. You know, the notion of purity at its core means there is a way things are supposed to be when they're right, wholesome, good. You know, just like at the physical level, we have standards, right? There is a food and drug administration, and it has standards of purity that aren't supposed to be violated. If you ever read the FDA standards, they're actually a little concerning because of how much impurity they allow in our foods. Let me read you a couple that kind of disturbed me. You know, if you ever eat apple butter, okay, this is the FDA here. If it averages four or more rodent hairs per 100 grams, or if it averages five or more insects, not counting mice or aphids, which apparently are okay with the government, the FDA will pull it. Okay, otherwise it goes right on your bagel with three or less rodent hairs on it, no problem. Mushrooms cannot be sold only if there's an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams. Hey, 19 maggots, that's fine. This is the government, your government. If there are more than 13 insect heads per 100 grams of fig paste, the FDA will toss it. There are 12 or less, that's yeah, cool. And apparently other insect body parts are okay. We just don't want to have to look at their little heads when we're having fig paste. And, and then there's hot dogs, okay? You don't even want to know. If they took all the impurities out of a hot dog, there would be nothing left at all. This language of purity, it kind of reminds us of something we all know, that there is a way things are supposed to be. And that's true of fig paste, and it's true of the human character, love and justice. And sin destroys that. We end up polluting the physical world, our characters, our own souls, and the moral world around us because we live in a moral and spiritual ecosystem, just as we do a physical ecosystem. We all affect it, and we're all affected by it. And sin, what sin does is it enslaves, it degrades. Now, here's a really important thing for us to be aware of. Sometimes church people are kind of concerned about getting punished for sin. And the main message might be, here's how you keep from being punished for sin. But actually, the freedom we need most is, is freedom from the power of sin. And churches get a little weird about this. Sometimes people in churches can wonder things like, how much sin can there be in my life before I need to start worrying? Like, is there a level of sin in the acceptable zone for a Christian? And then if you go higher, you're in danger, like the level of plastic in the ocean or something. Is there a limit to impurity? Is it high or is it low? It's a little bit like asking, how much cancer should I let build up in my body before I ought to do something about it? The problem with sin is not simply that we're going to get in trouble for it. The problem with sin is this. It's its own punishment at the core. Let me say that again. Sin is its own punishment at the core. Now, what sin should I hate? Now, sometimes people defend the saying, love the sinner, hate the sin, from a verse in Romans where Paul says these sobering words. He says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. You notice Paul is not saying we're supposed to hate the sin in somebody else's life, those people out there. He's saying, I should hate my sin, my coldness, my greed, my self-centeredness, anything that would keep me from loving sincerely. Now, I want to take a moment in this message to call us all to do that this weekend. I want to talk as your pastor about sin for a moment because I've watched too many marriages just end up in coldness and resentment and pain and death where even little lives get shattered because of it. And it could have been otherwise. 
I've seen too many young people, and quite frankly, not so young people, who live in a hyper-sexualized culture making really bad decisions. And somebody's heart gets shattered, or somebody's body makes a promise that their will won't keep. I've seen family members grow cold and distant and go for days, weeks, years in silence and cruelty for reasons so stupid they can't even remember. I mean, right now, we're all seeing a nation torn apart by sin. Division, gossip, slander, racial prejudice, materialism, suspicion, when words and deeds of contrition and humility might have honored God and healed wounds, but they're not happening. I've watched parents idolize work at the expense of little children. Watch people get so consumed with more and more and more that they forget we live in a world where there are thousands of little children who die of hunger every day, and I could be a part of the solution. I could save some. I mean, the coronavirus has shown us examples of people hoarding, stockpiling, rather than considering their neighbor and loving him or her as they would themselves. I've seen women demeaned by men who cover it up in soul-destroying ways or in what could have been a wonderful friendship, I've heard words of gossip that just tear down a reputation. And please hear me here. I am not preaching down from a pedestal here. I mean, I'm in this muck and mire myself. I've seen what pride and ego and deceptiveness can do to my heart. So I just want to ask every one of us today, this is part of what it means to be the church, to surrender your will, your life, wholly to God. You need to do this. It's for your own good. You know, ask God to convict you of any sin. And when's the last time you've done that? Just in a few moments of quiet, ask God, would you prompt my conscience, God? Any attitude, any habit, any words, any deeds I've done where sin has a foothold on me, God, I want to confess it to you. If you've wronged somebody, go to that person and confess it. If you've spoken ill about someone behind their back, even if you think they deserved it, go ask for forgiveness. If you've done something wrong, make it right as best you can. If you need accountability, get it. Folks, the relief from forgiveness and a new start and a clean conscience and a God-honoring life are only one honest prayer away from getting started. So don't neglect this. So that's the problem, the power of sin and how God wants to free us from it. Now, let's turn our attention to the second part of this saying. There's hate the sin, and then there's love the sinner. Love the sinner. Now, this seems like the kind of thing Jesus would say. I mean, Jesus loved everybody. He was called a friend of sinners. That was intended as an insult, by the way, but he wore it like a badge of honor. He got in trouble for this all the time. It's more or less what got him killed. He hung out with sinners. He came to help sinners. Paul said Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus was like a sinner magnet. But Jesus never says, love the sinner. Right? He says, love your neighbor. He says, love your enemy. He says, love one another. But he never actually says the words, love sinners. Why not? Well, of course, for one thing, just saying love your neighbor covers everybody. Your neighbor's not just the person next door. It's whoever you run into. So sinners are already included. But I have a feeling part of it is because if Jesus would have said, love the sinner, his followers would have started looking for sinners and would have started dividing the world up into sinners and then, you know, what should we call the other category? Good, right-thinking people, people of the correct ideology or party 
or religion or sexuality or values. You know, people like me. And then we get all puffed up about it and say, hey, come look at me loving those sinners. So interesting that Jesus hangs out with sinners all the time, but he never says, I love you, but I hate your sin. Instead, he talks with them a lot about God's mercy, God's grace, God's acceptance, God's forgiveness. He says, I love you. Why don't you come to me and get a fresh start? In fact, about the only time in the Gospels, you can check this out for yourself, where Jesus expresses hatred for sin is the sin of loveless, judgmental spirits. It's when he's hanging out with people who regard themselves as spiritual experts, spiritually mature people. One of the most famous stories was about this. This is Luke 18.9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Okay, in other words, these people were guilty of the great sin of not loving, but they didn't think of themselves as sinners. They thought those were the sinners. Jesus told this parable about a proud religious Pharisee, a spiritual expert, who loudly thanks God. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Okay, meanwhile, the corrupt tax collector is quietly praying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. By the way, that's the origin of the Jesus prayer right here. Starts 2,000 years ago in this story. It's that sinful tax collector. To the shock of the crowd, in his brokenness, neediness, and humiliation, he's the one who's the hero. See, we have no business pronouncing judgment on other people because we don't know anybody's full story. There's a writer, C.S. Lewis, and he put it like this. It's a bit of a lengthy statement, but it's so helpful, it's worth reading. He said, human beings judge one another by their external actions. God judges them by their moral choices. When a neurotic who has a pathological horror of cats forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason, it is quite possible that in God's eyes, he has shown more courage than a healthy man may have shown in winning a purple heart. When a man who has been perverted from his youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing does some tiny little kindness or refrains from some cruelty he might have committed and thereby perhaps risks being sneered at by his companions, he may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you and I would do if we gave up life itself for a friend. It is as well to put this the other way around. Some of us who seem quite nice people may in fact have made so little use of a good heredity and good upbringing that we are really worse than those whom we regard as fiends. That is why Christians are told not to judge. We see only the results which a man's choices make out of his raw material, but God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. There will be surprises. Hmm. That's good. Lewis says that when the final judgment comes, there will be surprises. Now, as you hear these words, and if you're wondering if there is ever a good reason for picking up a cat, okay, let me just go on record as saying cats are made by God. Cats are loved by God. Cats should be picked up by human beings and loved often, shouldn't they? I mean, even if they will all end up in hell, we're still to love them. I'm kidding. Okay, all you cat lovers, don't send me spiteful emails. Don't come knocking on my door. Keep your social distance. 
Anyway, Jesus says, judge not. Because religious people have a hard time not judging. That's a weird thing about us. I, I give up doing bad things, like drinking, smoking, swearing, bad movies, TV shows, whatever. Or I start doing good habits. I start praying, reading the Bible, exercise, giving, volunteering. Those are good things to do. But this is the way the evil one works. Very often my next thought is, what's the matter with other people? What's the matter with you? Why can't you be more like me and do what I do? It's a little root of hypocritical, judgmental lovelessness springs up in the middle of all that glittering virtue. I think I'm doing good at this and that, and ironically, it chokes out love. And love is the first and the greatest commandment. This is why sometimes people who pursue all that virtue end up worse off than if they never did at all. You know, it's interesting, in our day, Christians will often lament the lack of Christian power and influence in politics and society and culture. They'll lament the loss of belief in moral absolutes and theological orthodoxy. But you know, the Pharisees were very committed to moral absolutes and theological orthodoxy, and they were not bringing in paradise. An awful lot of leaders in the Middle Ages who had a lot of power were very committed to moral absolutes and theological orthodoxy, and it didn't usher in paradise. You know, in Geneva, in John Calvin's day, church attendance was compulsory. It was the law. If you didn't go to church on Sunday, you would be arrested. And here are things, by the way, that were forbidden in Geneva. Feasting, dancing, singing, pictures, statues, church bells, organs, wearing rouge, jewelry or lace, playing cards, or naming children after figures not in the Bible. Those were all against the law. Don't you wish you lived in Geneva? No. A father who christens his son Claude, a name not found in the Bible, spent four days in jail. As did a woman, I'm not making this up, whose hairdo reached an immoral height. Apparently there's a certain height hair can go where it's moral, and beyond that it was judged to be immoral. Clearly I'm not going to have that problem. There was a child in Geneva who struck his parents. He was beheaded. John Calvin's stepson and daughter-in-law were caught in sexual misconduct. They were both beheaded. That's about as far away from living like Jesus and loving like Jesus as you could possibly get. See, when the church turns into the moral police, we have the power now, we'll pass the laws now, it generally doesn't help too much. The world doesn't need more Christians pointing out what people are doing wrong. At the end of Jesus' story about the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's just weird. The very fact I believe there's such a thing as sin and we ought to strive against it can create this idea or illusion that I'm better than those secularists, relativists, those non-believers out there who don't even believe in the word sin. You know, it's really hard to raise children who are righteous without making them self-righteous. Have you noticed that, parents? It's easy, so terribly easy for those of us who use the word sin to take pride in our right beliefs, all the wrong things I've never done. It's easy for people like me to see sin out there and miss the sin in here. And damaged folks end up not loving, not even knowing that I'm not loving those people. So let's not do that. It's easy to miss grace. Let's not miss grace. Let's humble ourselves. Let's love. 
you know, there are massive amounts of sin. I mean, how much sin is there in Georgetown, the greater Austin area? Oh, my goodness. Tons of sin. It's like Sinapalooza out there. Arrogance, greed, envy, promiscuity, hedonism, godlessness. Wow. How much sin is there in this church? Oh, my goodness. It's like a Sinapalooza around here. I know I get data on this on a regular basis because of my job. How much sin is there in my heart? Oh, my. Only God knows fully. I don't even know fully. What I do know is scary. I know this much. There's at least enough sin in here to keep Jesus busy for the next several decades if he had nothing else to do. So let's love. Let's hate the sin that's in us because it's keeping us from being the people God wants us to be. And it messes up our world so badly. Let's be the world's leading experts, not at pointing out the sins of the world out there, but at bringing our own sin to God and laying it at the cross. Let's ask for his help. Let's ask for freedom from the power of sin in our lives. Let's humble ourselves. Let's end by praying the prayer we started with. Okay, wherever you are right now listening to me, just say this with me one phrase at a time. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen.